the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. This is Dominic Coyle standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, we'll be looking at the failed takeover bid for Smurfit Kappa with Joe Brennan. I'll talk to economist Seamus Coffey of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council about their latest assessment of the government's budgetary policy. And Peter Hamilton is here with his roundup of the week's business news. But first, Peter, I gather we have some breaking news. That's right, Dominic. Uh, The former chief executive of Anglo-Irish Bank, David Drum, has been found guilty on uh, two counts of fraud. his trial, which lasted 86 days, one of the longest in the state, concluded after the jury returned their verdict uh, after 10 and a half hours of deliberations today. The unanimous verdict found Mr. Drum guilty on both counts. Uh, he had pleaded not guilty to conspiring to defraud depositors and investors at Anglo by dishonestly creating the impression that deposits in 2008 were 7.2 billion euro larger than they were. So this has been around 10 years in the making, just shy of 10 years. He also pleaded not guilty to false accounting on December the 3rd, 2008, by furnishing information to the market that Anglo's 2008 deposits were 7.2 billion euro uh, larger than they were in other states. In this case, we're arguing that Mr. Drum conspired with Irish Life and Permanent's former chief executive, Dennis Casey, Anglo's former financial director, Willie McAteer, Anglo's former head of treasury, John Bow, and others to carry out the 7.2 billion euro in fraudulent transactions in order to bolster the customer deposits figure on the bank's balance sheets. So this is the end of quite a very well, quite a long process involving Mr. Drum and and perhaps quite a long one involving Anglo. Uh, obviously, this is only breaking news. It it does remain to be seen if if the verdict is appealed and and we have yet, of course, to wait for sentence, which I understand will be handed down at a later date. Indeed, yeah, that's what that's what the judge said today. She she will not be sentencing today. Okay, Peter, thank you very much. And and maybe returning then to your, your review of some of the week's news. And once again, Peter, Facebook finds itself in the news for all the wrong reasons. It hasn't really been out of the news for the last couple of months, as you say there. And and this week, a quarter of ordinary shareholders voted against the reappointment of Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to the board. Now, this isn't hugely significant in itself, because these are ordinary shareholders, they're Class A shareholders, and they have one vote per share. That compares to Class B shareholders, who ha- and Class B stock would be held by management and directors, and they have 10 votes a share. So it's not hugely significant, but still not a great vote of confidence in Zuckerberg or Sandberg. And it comes this week after the company acknowledged it had shared user data with uh, Chinese handset manufacturers, including Huawei, Lenovo, Oppo and TCL, they were amongst the providers that were given access to the data. And Facebook now is saying it will end the partnership with Huawei by the end of the week. But, but it, does, it does seem to be learning quite slowly about the need to be transparent about with user data. I mean, we, we'd just exactly. been through this with Cambridge Analytica. You would have thought we wouldn't have another of these coming through so soon. Exactly. It, it hasn't been a long time since the last scandal. It was March when Cambridge Analytica came to our attention. And since then, they've been in front of a US uh, Congress committee. They're not really learning their lesson. However, shares have remained quite resilient over the last few months. When the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, uh, shares fell to $152 a share. Yesterday's close was 192 So shareholders doing relatively well if they picked up after Cambridge Analytica and held on until yesterday. So despite Cambridge Analytica and our friend Max Schrems, maybe privacy doesn't quite pay just yet. <laughs> well, not <laughs> investors don't seem to mind too much. 
And closer to home, Peter, there's been uh, a couple of stories of interest this week. Yeah, the collapse uh, of Carillion a, f- a couple of months ago has caused the perfect storm for salmon, uh, which was forced into liquidation over uncertainty as to whether they'd be appointed to finish a 100 million euro schools construction project. This will cost 200 jobs. And it again raises questions for auditors uh, who are behind, who are to some degree, they approved Carillion's accounts 10 months uh, before the company went into collapse. Social consequences for auditors, we've we've said this before in the Irish Times. uh, And here's another social consequence of an audit that didn't raise flags that perhaps it could have or should have. Anyway, And, and, and maybe not just uh, a price for auditors because there's a concern, obviously, for, for the people who would have been using these schools. Yeah, absolutely. It's un- unclear now whether they'll open in September. Uh, and the Department of Education now has to find a replacement to build two schools as well for 1,000 pupils in Maynooth. Now, remember, construction on these stopped back in January, so we're waiting a long time so the September deadline is looming fairly quickly. Salmon were hoping that a bid with BAM would win a contract to finish the work on the six schools that stalled in January. Um, but delays by uh, the Dutch Infrastructure Fund appointing a subcontractor led to uncertainty over whether that bid would succeed. Now JJ Rattigan and Sisk seem to be uh, involved in bidding to finish that work. Okay, uh, maybe another story I, I think that's probably focused a lot of interest in the last few days, certainly, is the new Italian government and what that's going to mean for, for Italy and maybe for some of the rest of us. Well, indeed, for Europe as a whole, I suppose Italy have really been rattling markets over the past week and a half. And it first started when the, it emerged that the populists were close to forming a government. There were concerns at that point over the retention of the euro. Uh, and, but on Friday, I suppose some of those concerns were ever so slightly allayed. Uh, or sorry, sorry, earlier this week. But on Friday, uh, Giuseppe Conte was appointed by the president there, Sergio Mattarella. And his his maiden speech was expected to calm the markets, but it ended up alarming them after he pledged a raft of populist measures from boosting spending on the poor and the jobless to sweeping tax cuts. The mm. speech itself didn't make any mention of the euro, but later on that day he insisted that the euro isn't an objective of government. So that would have done something to appease some investors. Um, the, ultimately, the attempt to calm the markets was unsuccessful. Mm. And, and again, today, uh, the Italian markets are being hammered. Okay. Uh, so so Italy's been, been giving the markets a bit of a wobble in the past few weeks, and so too has one of our own leading companies, Smurfit Kappa. And here to tell me why is our markets correspondent, Joe Brennan. Uh, thank you, Dominic. Um, yes, I suppose on um, it became clear towards the back end of last week uh, uh, that the Smurfit deal was, uh, would probably not go ahead. Smurfit uh, was approached uh, in mid-February by international paper, the US uh, paper giant. Um, there had been speculation a few years ago that IP was looking at it, but it came to fruition in, in February and there was an announcement in early March that uh, IP made an approach, a stock and cash approach uh, for the business. Smurfit, from the very outset, refused to engage. It said it looked at the, and in fairness, that the board did look at the deal. They had a number of issues with the deal. They said it didn't value the company, the intrinsic value of the company, and its prospects weren't captured in the, in that bid. Uh, they also spoke about just having a very different culture to that of of international paper, and also that the, the prospects of of the company just didn't didn't capture that. Um, IP came back again and, and sweetened the offer towards late March. Again, Smurfit Kappa looked at that, came back with a resounding no and refused to engage. So in the middle of, in the middle of May, 
the takeover panel decide to put a a put up or shut up deadline of the sixth of 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 June today on our international paper to put in a, a formal binding offer. And international paper had said from the very outset that it would not put anything in unless it was recommended by the board of Smurfit Kappa. So it was looking fairly clear towards the back end of last year, last week, that this was 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 this was, was falling, uh, that the prospects of the deal going ahead was was uh, was declining. So we saw a bit of a wobble in the share price on 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 Friday, and again Bank Holiday Monday in Ireland, but the shares in Smurfit Kappa uh, slumped about seven point five percent, which is the most since the the, the Brexit vote, um, as it became very. Became very clear that the the deal wouldn't wouldn't go ahead, and and now the clock has run out. Smurfit has seen off international paper, but there's a view that uh, doing so has seen a ticket's eye off the ball elsewhere. Maybe uh, rival Dia Smith this week snapping up uh, Europac, a Spanish group uh, that was seen as as a neat fit possibly for Smurfit and possibly one of the last big bolt on opportunities for for uh, paper and packaging in Europe. Yeah, certainly in Europe, um, Europac would be seen as one of the kind of the, the last big plays that could be made for a company like Smurfit. There would be significant potential synergies for Smurfit, giving its its uh, leading position in Europe as a as a box maker. Um, it could also have had some kind of competition issues as well. In fairness to Smurfit. Um, you know, they announced in, in February they were going to uh, proceed with a 1.6 billion uh, investment plan over the next four years. And they last week they announced, or the week before last, they announced uh, the acquisition of a, a Dutch uh, firm for about six, 460 million euros. Um, so at least they were able to go through that um, uh, while they were, st- you know, trying to defend themselves from a, a takeover of, of international paper. But certainly, you know, uh, trying to defend yourself from something like that uh, it would take your management's eye off maybe other big potential transformational type deals that would be out there like Europac. And, and as we know, uh, even if you can see off some of these deals, quite often it leaves you vulnerable because it raises the whole issue to other companies that, that you may be a target. And, and already this, this week uh, there's been talk that another rival, Mondi, might indeed be running a rule over, over Smurfit in the near future, even if international paper is barred from doing so for the next 12 months at least. Yeah. I, I, again, the, the, um, the, the deadline passed today, and yes, you see the share price still up 17% versus where it was prior to the market knowing anything about international paper. So there's something keeping that up. Uh, certainly, Smurfit itself came out uh, with very strong results earlier this year, and it had a trading statement in May, and it guided towards a significant increase in its own uh, operating earnings this year. Uh, the outlook for the industry is pretty good. Uh, its own uh, input costs have, have fallen quite dramatically as well. So its its own outlook has improved, and that could account for some of the uh, the, 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 the reason why the uh, stock is held up to an extent. But also there is speculation that Smurfit uh, could still be in play. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a report earlier this week that uh, Mondi, the South African, but also fellow FTSE 100 listed uh, paper company, uh, could make a, a stab at uh, going for Smurfit Kappa. The put-up or shut-up deadline having been passed for international paper, it can't bid for the next 12 months. But if someone else were to come in, like Monday, it would open the door to IP coming in again. So there may still be some sort of consolidation, takeover speculation built into that share price. OK, and it's been relatively interesting times for listed Irish companies. We've had several IPOs, but possibly one of the more interesting IPOs, IPL Plastics, will happen not in Dublin, but in Toronto. Uh, this is a company with a lot of history uh, and equally a, a strategy that even now divides opinion. 
Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Um, you have, uh, I suppose, stepping back, back in 2005, uh, this company IPL started off as 151, which is spun off from IAWS. Uh, it was led by Philip Lynch. He went about raising about 300 million of, of equity and over 440 million of debt in the, the following three years, went about buying anything and everything. It was a bit of a ragbag in terms of investments. Um, when the crash came and it was a leveraged uh, business, it was also seen to have have a disparate amount of different types of investments and the market couldn't get a handle as of what it really was. So he left, um, the new uh, chief executive, Alan Walsh, came in in 2011 and really spent the last number of years trying to kind of reshape this business. Um, in getting out of, you know, investments like uh, Irish Continental Group, uh, Irish Pride and, and, and uh, hazardous waste, it has doubled down in, uh, in plastics and rigid plastics at that. Um, the business is mainly US focused, even though most of the investors are Irish, uh, the likes of Larry Goodman, the likes of uh, Carrier in there, a number of high net worth individuals that uh, basically followed a man with a plan back in 2005 are still there and have been waiting for a long time for an exit. Uh, they were offered a uh, an exit a few times uh, by uh, Capfest. Uh, this is a, uh, a UK-based uh, private equity firm run by Seamus Fitzpatrick. They'd knocked on the door a few times, most recently late last year with a bid of 250. Um, now, there were a number of conditions attached. It meant uh, the investors rolling into this new vehicle, which would be a leveraged vehicle, so you can't see it like for like. But if you look at that price versus what the, the IPO range is or the euro equivalent of the Canadian dollar IPO range, you're talking about 180 to uh, 213 euros. So it is a discount to that. Mm. Uh, maybe some investors would have been happier to roll into the new vehicle than go down the IPO route. And we shall see shortly when they when they formally launch in Toronto what the future is in rigid plastics and whether they'd have been better off going with Capfest. Uh, so thanks very much, Joe. OK, we'll take a short break now. When we get back, we'll be looking at a new report that shows that the Irish economy may not be overheating. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This week, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, the body charged with uh, providing independent oversight of government economic and budgetary policy, published its latest assessment. Here to talk about this story are my colleague Owen Burke-Kennedy, and by phone we're joined by Seamus Coffey, who is chairman of the council. Owen, Seamus, thanks for joining us. Uh, Seamus, possibly we'll go to you first. Um, you've published this assessment uh, this week. What, what are we getting right and what concerns does the, the council have? The first thing to look at is sort of our assessment of the, the general macroeconomic situation and how the, the overall budgetary uh, situation feeds into that. And when looking at the Irish economy, I think there's there's no doubt that it's gone through a strong recovery for the past four or five years. We've seen the unemployment rate drop from 15%. I think that the latest figures now put it under 6%, 5.8%. All indications are that it will continue to fall. So I think from an economic perspective, the economy is probably uh, getting back towards um, being at full capacity. There, there still would be, I think, some slack in the economy and there's no indication yet of overheating pressures developing in general. We don't see it in, in general inflation. Uh, we are seeing moderate wage increases, credit growth remains low and I think our, our international situation through what we'd call the balance of payments 
uh, remains positive. So the, the general economic environment we find ourselves in is, is reasonably good. And if we look at the, the budgetary side, the, the government's fiscal affairs, I think we're finally getting to the stage where the budget deficit that blew up in 2008 uh, with the crash that occurred then uh, finally looks like it's about to be closed. We may run a, a small deficit this year. Um, but if we stick to the plans as set out by the government in the, the recent stability programme update, we should possibly even run uh, a small surplus next year. Uh, and I think the, the key message we would be getting out there is that the government should stick to the plans that are set out. Uh, it does give an indication for what should be done in, in budget 2019, but we think a, a more medium term view should be taken that while things are going well now, there are some clouds on the horizon, such as Brexit, US trade policy and the international tax environment, all which mean that caution should be merited. Much much of the focus, uh, certainly in reporting of the assessment, was on your view that the economy is not yet overheating, despite what uh, the OECD might have said recently. But am I right in thinking you're quite wary as, as, a, as a group of just how quickly that could change? Absolutely. The Irish economy, as we know, is, is a volatile economy uh, and conditions can change quite quickly. Um, so, for example, we, we've looked at, at housing output and ho- the residential housing construction, which we've been expecting to increase over the last number of years, but it still hasn't happened. And uh, we have seen uh, significant price increases, but we've been looking at indicators to see would there be a dramatic pickup in activity in that sector, whether it's planning permissions, commencement notices or the CSOs, index of activity in the sector. And while there are some increases, they are coming off a relatively low base. Now, if we take it that we've had maybe 10 years of below the required output in housing uh, and that the average, I suppose, ongoing annual requirement is about 30,000 units, even if we got up to 30,000 units, and we're probably just over half of that at the moment, we'd only be meeting the ongoing annual demand. We have a, a deficit of over 10 years to make up as well. So there's no doubt that housing activity has to ramp up above 30,000. Now that has something that's necessary, it should happen. But I suppose the question we'd ask is how is that going to happen? As we said, the unemployment rate is 5.8%. Building houses is a labour intense activity. Where are the workers going to come from to do it? Are we going to drag them from other sectors uh, in the economy back into construction, perhaps leading to wage and price pressures and maybe a loss of competitiveness? Or as we did before, are we going to bring workers in from abroad and have them build the houses? But of course, first of all, we must find somewhere to them to live, adding to the demand that we're trying to solve in the first place uh, before they can begin to build the houses. So there would be concerns about the capacity in the economy uh, to deal with issues such as this. So we do have to uh, increase housing output, but to do so in a sustainable fashion is a key issue. And, and this is true, and this is one of the challenges for government, but you, you do also mention that improvements in public finances have kind of stalled over the past three years. We've had, you know, this is a time our economic growth has been topping the, the EU league, it's well ahead of what the council sees as sustainable in the medium term. Have we wasted the opportunity of the crash to get our house in order? Over the last couple of years, there's no doubt that we can't expect the Irish economy to keep growing at the rate it's been uh, for the last uh, four or five years. And growth rates of 5-6%, employment growth of 3%, full-time employment is growing at its fastest rate since 1999. Um, you, you can't expect an economy to grow above its potential forever. So the growth rates will eventually slow down. But what we've noted in the last couple of years, if you look at the, the budgetary outcomes for 2015, 2016, 2017, and what's expected for 2018, that there really has been little or no improvement uh, in the underlying budgetary position. Yes, the high deficits of 2010, 11 and 12 have been closed. But in recent years, Uh, As the tax revenues have been generated, by and large, they've been spent. So we've noted that government spending is growing 
um, at a rate similar to government revenue. And even if you look at the exchequer returns that were published yesterday, uh, in the first five months of 2017, we ran a surplus of about 400 million. What the figures yesterday released showed is that we ran, albeit a very small deficit, uh, of about 40 million. So we went from a, a surplus of a couple of hundred million to a deficit, a small deficit. And that's even with strong revenue. And if you look at the overall budgetary situation, not only is the economy performing well, but the fiscal situation has got huge tailwind behind it to, to drive the improvement or to drive potential improvement. Corporation tax receipts have surged, gone from 4 billion to 8 billion in quite a short period of time. And of course, because of the ECB, uh, our national debt interest costs have been falling. There was a time when it was felt that debt interest would head for 10 billion and corporation tax would hover around 5 billion. In fact, if you look at the projections now, it's believed that debt interest will actually fall to 5 billion and corporation tax looks like it's heading for 10 billion. That's a 10 billion swing in those, just those two issues. And they're not really related to the strong economic performance we're seeing. And just, I mean, Owen, maybe bring you in at this stage, obviously there's an awful lot in that and there's an awful lot in this report, sure. but how does the, this, uh, the Fiscal Advisory Council report compare with other recent observations on the economy from the likes of the ESRI, the OECD and even the Department of Finance itself? Well, um, the, the Advisory Council's report sort of tallies with uh, what the ESRI has been saying for a number of months now, which is essentially that the government may need to uh, soon take money out of the economy to... Uh, uh, basically cancel the effects of overheating should it occur and the Minister has said if uh, he sees elements or evidence of overheating he will he will do so he will act. The problem is overheating is a bit of a nebulous concept and it's, it's a bit of a difficult one to tie down when it's actually happening. Um, you know at the, at the moment as long as the Minister is, is in a position where the economy is growing, wages are rising albeit at a moderate rate and the main opposition party is signing up to the equation um, he can kind of marry both objectives of being kind of relatively fiscally prudent and at the same time uh, spending moderately to address some of the kind of infrastructural deficits we have in housing and health. The problem is uh, with all these healthy numbers that are in the Irish economy, there is uh, a, an explosive set of variables uh, alongside them, not uh, not least Brexit, which is coming next year. Not least, uh, the, probably the biggest problems I see is it is this uh, construction uh, response at the heart of the economy, which which Seamus has talked about, uh, even though he says in his report that there is massive evidence of a massive pickup. The central bank is still predicting 23,000 units being built here and, and 28, I think, uh, the following year. That's a massive pickup from where we are. If that comes about and we hit full employment next year, which they're predicting, we're going to have a pretty pressurised economy. That could be happening uh, during a disorderly Brexit. We don't know. But so there's a really explosive set of variables that are lying in wait for us. So it's going to be a difficult one. And of course, if we are headed into a general election, which we will be at some stage in the future, uh, the political dynamic uh, faced by Minister Donoghue is going to get a lot tighter uh, and a lot hotter. Yeah, uh, Seamus, maybe I can come back to you on that, on, on not not on the election. I'll leave you leave you go on that one. But um, with this this report comes against the backdrop of a whole range of challenges. I mean, we're doing very well, but Brexit is definitely looming. International tax reform is going to be a reality, we know. And more recently, obviously, we have the US-inspired uh, trade war or efforts in that direction. Do do we think the government, knowing that some of these challenges are there? has done enough to get this this economy ready for, for the sort of challenges we're going to be facing in the next few years? 
Well, I think that the recovery over the past decade has been remarkable, I suppose. It's been stronger than, than almost anyone has predicted. So like getting the unemployment rate back down below 6%, being in a position where the, the public finances on an annual basis anyway are balanced, even though we still have and are carrying large amounts of debt, does leave us in a better position. Yes, you could say that things could be better if we had banked some of those corporation tax revenues and maybe hadn't spent all the benefits that the lower interest rates have generated. But in saying that, the economy had come through such a, a tough time, and I suppose the population had come through such a, a tough time, <laughs> that giving a signal that the era of austerity was over uh, was probably necessary maybe in 2015 and 2016. But I think given where we are now, that now we should be taking the opportunity to build up the buffer. So those key risks that you start, that you mentioned, Brexit and the, I suppose, ambiguous US trade policy, not quite sure what direction they're going. And thus far, changes in the international tax environment have benefited us. It's maybe one reason why we're collecting 8 billion euro in corporation tax a year. But we can't expect that the changes will always be uh, in the direction of benefiting us. And we're not saying that we have to wholly uh, tighten our belts and go back to austerity like that. The Fiscal Council have analysed what should be done maybe for budget 2019. And we say that given the nature of the or the position of the economy, we should look at growing public spending in line with what we think the economy can sustainably grow at, maybe three, three and a half percent. Put a bit of inflation on top of that, and you're looking at growing spending at four and a half percent. When we work through the numbers and look at the, the measure of spending we uh, analyze, you're looking at an increase in spending of three and a half billion, uh, which in itself is, is quite a substantial amount. Now, the government, through various announcements, have committed an awful lot of spending. So a lot of that three and a half billion has been eaten up. But there's no doubt that the economy is generating resources and we should be using them. OK. And Owen, maybe so caution is the watchword, but you've mentioned yourself that uh, we have an election looming. We have a rapidly diminishing fiscal space once, uh, as, as Seamus says, you take into account some of the commitments already made. How practical is it for a government to remain cautious and to keep its belt reasonably tight if they're facing into a possible election in the in 2019? Well, I suppose um, at the moment, as I said, you know, the main opposition party has signed up to the budgetary equation. So uh, and a lot of the spending uh, rules are locked down by the European fiscal rules. So in many cases, you know, uh, this equation is pretty comfortable at the moment for the minister, but it could change quite rapidly, as we've said. Um, because the coalition support really only runs to the, to the end of this budget. Yeah. And it's obvious that Fine Gael want to present itself as, as the party that, you know, is best at managing the economy. So uh, how it manages to do that and uh, maintain the pressure on it uh, to address some of these infrastructural deficits that we talked about is, is a very difficult one. Um, and uh, it's hard to know where that equation is going to go. One thing I'd say is what Seamus said about the kind of three and a half percent gloat rate that seems to always elude us. We always seem to be overshooting that or undershooting that. And that sort of stable long term growth rate is something that, uh, you know, we really need to uh, try and find. OK, look, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests, to Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on production and sound. And to all our listeners, until next time, take care.